Are you an adventurer looking to take your hunt to the next level? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the East Meets West Hunt podcast presented by Spartan Forge. On today's episode, I'm joined by Bill Vander Hayden of Iron Will Outfitters. Iron Will makes high-quality, durable broadheads, knives, and arrow components to help you make the most ethical shot possible. We are discussing hunting arrow setups, how to tune your bow for fixed broadheads, single versus double bevel broadheads, shot placement based on angle, anatomy of deer and elk, blood trailing after the shot, and more. 100% born in the Appalachian Mountains and made in the USA, Timber Ninja Outdoors provides a range of mobile hunting options to accommodate diverse hunting preferences. Whether you prioritize comfort, lightweight design, or versatility, their two-panel and single-panel saddles collection has something for everyone. The Black Belt Nano is the lightest single-panel saddle available on the market, weighing in under a pound. The saddle is designed with the minimalist hunter in mind, focusing on lightweight functionality and breathability. One notable feature is the patent-pending magnetic stick clip system on the side, which allows for convenient transportation of sticks up the tree, as well as a built-in platform holder. The Nano Saddle can be folded up to the size of a Nalgene bottle, enabling easy portability. With a four-way stretch material on the back for a comfortable fit, as well as strategically placed padding for hip pinch relief. You can use code EASTMEETSWEST to get free shipping on any Timber Ninja order. If you try it out and don't like it, send it back within 30 days for a full refund. Learn more at TimberNinjaOutdoors.com and sign up for their email newsletter for exclusive discounts and product drops. When it comes to optics, I get the same question over and over again. What are the best all-around binoculars? Well, it's tough to find something that works in every condition great, but after using a pair of Maven B1.2 10x42s, I think I found them. They feature an 8x or a 10x option, superior low light performance, tack sharp edge to edge clarity, a generous depth of field, and a silky focus mechanism. All of Maven Optics have a lifetime no fault warranty and hail from the great state of Wyoming. I've been using Maven Optics since I bought my first pair in 2017, and I think you should test them out for yourself. Head over to mavenbuilt.com and use the code EASTMEETSWEST-GIFT for a free gift with any full-price optics order. For all of those that want a truck bed cover for work or play, Diamondback makes the the top-of-the-line heavy-duty covers that help you do more with your truck. They're perfect for the truck-owning, avid sportsmen, outdoor enthusiasts, and weekend project warriors. I'm currently using the HD cover that can is capable of holding up to 1,600 pounds on the top. And then I have the Yakima Overhaul HD bars on top, so I can put my rooftop tent on it. When I'm not using my rooftop tent and able to use the trifold design of the Diamondback, I have the Crossbin 8 in there to organize all of my stuff in the back of my truck bed. Diamondback is made right here in Phillipsburg, Pennsylvania. If you want to check them out, head over to diamondbackcovers.com. If you've wanted that hunting camp tradition that we talk about, that experience, but you don't have a hunting camp of your own, you're welcome to come stay at my hunting camp up here in the Pennsylvania wilds called the Elk Crossing Getaway in the PA wilds. So if you go over to Airbnb, you can check out 
our three bedroom, one and a half bath house that's right in the heart of Pennsylvania elk country. It's only minutes away from a bunch of public land to be able to hunt, hiking trails, outdoor recreation, fishing, all of those things there. The house is completely fully stocked with everything that you need to be able to, to spend a week hunting deer, taking your family up to see the elk, anything like that. So if you head over to Airbnb and search Elk Crossing Getaway in the PA Wilds, you'll find my listing there and you can rent out my house to send us a message and inquiry that you're interested in it and mention that you heard it on the podcast here, then we'll get you 10% off of your first day. I just wanted to let you know, as this podcast goes out, I'll be just getting ready to head to Montana. So the next three weeks of episodes will be rolling out as I'm gone. So it'll be all pre-recorded going out there. As far as everything on the website, um, so shipping orders, apparel, water bottles, all those things, they will be going out while I'm gone. They will be shipping besides a time period from basically now. So from the day this podcast comes out until September 8th to 10th, there'll be a delay in shipping. So my backup for shipping uh, will be gone uh, during that time frame as well. So please be patient and just understand that you will get your stuff, but it might take a little bit longer than normal, uh, except for things that are like the t-shirts uh yeah well i guess just t-shirts and uh and the hoodie that is on the website that are shipped basically they're drop shipped so they're directly shipped from the manufacturer and those are listed on there so if you did order something with those you might get them sooner so just again please be patient and i really appreciate all of the support and all of the orders that have come in got some really cool stuff coming soon uh, some new deer camp styles that uh, I, I'm just waiting on the hats to be done I have the rest of the stuff in hand just waiting for that once I get back from Montana hopefully I'll have that and able to do the the release of it before our de- deer seasons you know mostly here in the east kick off so I appreciate that. Uh, as always, new YouTube videos going up, uh, some short clips, kind of going through some some tips, some other things going. Going to be uh, just finishing the editing on my Pennsylvania deer hunt from last year. That It's like a vlog style video, not a film style like some of my other ones. Um, it's just me with the camera, so not uh, not the best work on on that front. But I turned into kind of a um, a learning experience and and explaining the setup and, and showing that and showing the process of blood trailing and all of those different things. So hopefully it'll be valuable. But that that'll come out here um, sometime towards the end of September. Uh, other than that, um, I don't think I really have any other news to share. I just think that this podcast here with Bill is very timely. Uh, for the time of year, shot angles, um, you, you know, your arrow setups, all those different things. It's it's something that uh, that we need to really pay attention to and understand the anatomy to be able to to make the most ethical shot possible. Uh, as you'll see, uh, we talk about some some shots in here that are. I guess not recommended on a lot of um, in a lot of places that you read, and, and definitely not recommended for anybody new to it. Um, but just throwing it out there and explaining how we look at shot process and how Bill looks at shot processes, and with his arrow setup, his bow setup, his how he's comfortable with his shots. 
what he's comfortable taking and uh, yeah, very interesting stuff. So I hope that you get a lot of good information out of this podcast. If you like it, please give it a review, uh, rating wherever you listen to it at, share it with your friends. It helps out so much. Um, but anyways, I hope everyone has a great rest of your week. And if you are heading anywhere hunting already, as, as we're coming into September here, uh, good luck to you and be safe. All right, Bill Vanderhain, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Bo, thanks for having me on. How you been? Good, good. How about yourself? It was good getting run into you a little bit there and uh, the Colorado TAC and getting to talk to you for a few minutes. But yeah, how you been? Yeah, good. Uh, you know, busy. It's a busy time of year for us and just trying to get ready for some hunts here. Um, elk season is just about two weeks away, so looking forward to that. <laughs> I know. It's... It, it snuck up on me. I feel like pretty, pretty quick as it always does. I feel like, but, uh, when I got back from the total archery challenge in Montana and I was like, it's August 1st already. I'm like, uh Oh, <laughs> things are, things yeah. are coming quick. So I've been, been, you know, going through all my gear, getting everything dialed, ready to, ready to head to Montana. So I'm, I'm excited about that. And, and you, uh, you were saying before we started recording here, you have both a Colorado and a Montana elk tag, correct? Right. Yep. So I'm going to start in Colorado. I'll, I have an elk tag and a bear tag here and, um, and then a general tag elk in Montana. So yeah, I'm going to be hitting elk, elk pretty hard here um, in just a couple of weeks. Yeah, no, that's, that's exciting. And, and, uh, so how's, how's everything been with this time of year, like with iron will. So I, I, I should have uh, started with that, but Bill's been on here before. So for a full background on, on Bill, you can listen to some of the other podcasts, but founder of iron will outfitters, broadheads, arrow components, knives, the whole, the whole bit. Anybody that's listened to the show knows that, uh, I've been shooting the broadheads now for four years and started using some of the arrow components and knives and everything for, for quite a while. So, uh, um, this, you know, with this time of year, I'm sure people are, you know, just getting really ramped up and trying to buy their broadheads and, and everything else. So it's probably a pretty busy time for you. Yeah. August is our, is our busiest month. Um, a lot of guys wait till that, the last, last minute. Um, but what's good news this year, we actually have inventory the last three or four years. We've always sold out, um, of a lot of product in August, but this year we worked hard and added machines and people and, um, you know, tried to try to meet meet demand. So that's good news, anyways. We're not telling people we can't sell your broadheads, <laughs> but it is a busy it is a busy time of year. You know, or just our customer service, tech support. Um, we just get get hammered right now with everybody wanting help with their setup, and we're and we're happy to do that too. We we spend a lot of time just um, getting the right arrow set up for people and what heads they should shoot and, and all that. But no, it's it's busy, but it goes from you know, for me, August one is when I start thinking, oh man, I got to just focus on everything I need to get, get ready for my hunts. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's kind of hard to do both, but good thing is we've added people and have a good team to kind of support that. Well, I, I'm going to take off, uh, I'm going to take off here in a couple of days scouting and then, uh, yeah, not get a whole lot of work done after a couple of weeks from now. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I hear you. And it's, uh, it's, it's crazy because I remember working at an archery shop and being like, how does everyone wait until the last minute to you need gear and everything? And, and I still find myself doing that with some things. Like I feel like, you know, my bow is usually pretty dialed. It, 
ahead of time and everything been shooting all summer and everything but when it comes to other gear i was just going through my list and like oh i need a new ground sheet i can't find my old one for my for my sleeping pad and my tent and i'm trying to order some stuff real quick and and uh it, it definitely creates that uh that demand at this time of year that's for sure yeah and i think a lot of companies in the archery industry in particular but i think a lot of outdoor companies have been um, short on product the last couple of years. So if you waited to last minute, you, you might have to do without. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure you know, across the industry how it how it is this year. Um, I think it's probably better than it has been the last couple of years. But yeah, there's probably still stuff you can't get if you waited waited too long. Yeah. What um so what's what's been what's been going on with Iron Will? Anything new recently? Um or anything that that uh, you want to kind of talk about from the from the Iron Will standpoint before we jump into the podcast? Oh, what's new this year? Um, I guess new last year was our single bevel broadheads. They were really popular. Um, we started out with just a one twenty five grain on up right hand single bevel um, last year, and that was really popular. So we expanded that single bevel line to go down to a hundred grains and then add either right or left um, single bevel. So you can match that if you're right flesh or left flesh, you just wanna match the, the bevel grind so that rotation to the animal um, keeps going in the same direction that your arrow was, was rotating. So that's that's probably the biggest thing that's new this year is um, expanding single bevel line. Um, we kind of redid our knives, our K1 ultralight hung knife, our K2 skinny knife, and the skinny knife just came out a few few weeks back. So those are like about a one ounce knife. Um, so ultra light, but yet um, can get you through an animal without having to resharpen. So we're, we're, um, I did some revisions on the design there after a lot of feedback. Um, and I really like the latest K1 and K2. So those are mainly the, the new things. Um, you know, our components, hit inserts, collars have, um, you know, gotten more, more and more popular. So it's been, uh, yeah, we're, uh, we added a couple sizes last year, but I think we got a pretty good coverage there and those are really busy for us too, but that's kind of the highlights of what we have going on. Yeah, no, it's the, I, I didn't realize that you'd redesigned the, the K1 ultralight. That's, so it's different than the one that it was last year. Then that be correct. We, um, we launched it <clears throat> like last fall. I kind of missed hunting season. It was in like October, November. Yes. Um, okay. I, I do have the new one. Got you. I think we got you on yep. at that time. But um, yeah, so it was new at that time. We added a black ceramic coating option, um, added a saber grind to the blade and changed the shape a little bit. So you know, that was kind of new late last fall. And then the, and then the K2 um, just came out about a month ago or so. We released that. Okay. Yeah, I have I have the one with uh, the the sharp top and then the G10 handle on it and everything, and it was really nice. I I used it um, on a whitetail last yeah whitetail last year because I had the other one that I used um, earlier on in one of my first whitetails, and then once I got the other knife in later, was able to use it. Really love the design, how lightweight it is, and and um, yeah, it's super nice. And I always carry that little tiny carbide sharp sharpener with me in the woods in case you do need something to, to be able to, to sharpen it up and it works with my broadheads yeah. too. So it's, it's a nice little, nice little tool to, to be able to keep in there as well. Great. I don't know if you have our K2 or not. Um, show it to you here in the video, but it's, it's the, 
is I think it's 1.6 inches wide. So it's, it's a wider knife and a big sweeping radius to it. And you can, there's a hole through it where you can choke up and then it's, you know, really easy to hang on to, or you can yeah. also position back. But, um, the idea with that, with a lot, this large sweeping radius, you don't cut through hide very easily at all. So it, it works nice to, um, kind of a specialty skinning knife to, um, protect that, that hide and that cape from you poking holes through it and making your taxidermy do a bunch of sewing. <laughs> yeah. <So. laughs> yeah. Anyways, yeah. I, I like a knife like this one. I have to, to skin and uh, do a nice job of skinning. It's really much harder to poke through. Um, anyway, that's the, that's our latest offering is, is that knife. Oh, nice. So yeah, anybody that's listening to the podcast, you can see it on the, the video version or you just see it on their website as well. But, uh, um, I, I like, uh, I wasn't going to say that the K one, I remember I was skinning out a coyote a couple years ago with it and talk about how sharp it is. I, I like did so good at all the detail work. I got around the head and skinned everything out to get the tan hide. Then I, when I was at the tail, like the easiest portion, I cut the tail off by, <laughs> by uh, one miscut. And, uh, so they actually just called me. It was almost, I guess it's almost been two years now and they just called me and said it was done. So they must've got it all, must've got it fixed. So <laughs> the, the tail sewed back on. <laughs> yeah, there's, yeah, definitely. But no, I, I had, um, so I'd used, um, for anyone listening, like I'd used the the S125 that's been my broadhead of choice for the last however many years um, for elk and deer. And then once the wide series came out, I had moved to that for whitetails and had used it. And then uh, this year, um, when when I was actually, I think I, was, I might have been either, I think I was you're talking to you or Eric was like, hey, you should try out the the single bevels and see what you think of those. And so this will be my first year trying those out. Um, but I went with a little bit different setup because I'm, I'm using, uh, your inserts now and the Snyder core system to go inside the, the smaller diameter, uh, vector arrows. And, and I have the 25 grain insert and then the collar and then the 135 grain, uh, single bevel broadhead on there. And it, uh, it was shooting great. I mean, I, I had posted some videos the other day of, of shooting with my field points. I didn't have to make any adjustments. I had tuned my bow. All I did was basically paper tune it and it was shooting right on. So I had no issues with that. Yeah, great. I really like that Snyder core system too for micros. I mean, the alignment's great and it really reinforces it well. Um, that's what I shot in, in micro diameter arrows on all my hunts the last couple of years. Um, okay. And yeah, I, I like that system. Did you use it? Did you do it as a totally glue-in system or with the epoxy hits in it? So I was planning on doing it with the epoxy hit, and then I ended up just, I just started hot melting them in as a glue-in system. And I like that method a lot. It uh, That's that's what I did with all my arrows now. I have them set up that way. It's pretty simple. Like at first I thought it was going to be difficult if I wanted to change them, how to, you know, remove it by gluing it in, but that's not, it's not hard at all. You just heat it back up and pull them right out. I actually just did, just did one, um, this morning that I was swapping out and, and it was not a problem whatsoever. How do you, how do you like to set yours up? I prefer the, the hot melt too. I, um, I played around with epoxying some and hot melting some and, and, you know, it was actually something that Aaron Snyder had done for years with our 204 system is he just hot melted everything in because he wanted to get them, build the arrows and, you know, hunt 10 minutes later. 
you know, um, and not wait for epoxy. And I, I wasn't sure about it, but, uh, you know, working with him on the micro design, I started trying it more and more. And I really, I, I really like it too. Um, and that's what I ended up doing a lot. And yeah, changeover, you know, I could do it on my tailgate in the middle of a hunt on with the jet boil and like 10 minutes if I needed to. Um, so the changeover wasn't that big a deal. And then with that Snyder core, you've got like three inches of the core, you know, reinforced with, with steel between that one inch shank on the broadhead and then another, depending on which head you use, but um, which hit you use, but another inch and a quarter or, you know, inch and a half. So you got like, you know, two and a half inches or three inches of reinforced core and you, and you hot melt that all in. It's just a really, uh, really solid system for impact strength and everything. So that's the way I like it. So what I do with my micros is I do all hot melt. Um, I'm currently set up with some tool four diameter, um, like, axis um just standard axis and five millimeter and then i'm usually using the hit and screwing in and i just i did that this year because i'm testing a lot of different um veins and broadheads currently looking at vein stability and then it was easier if i just wanted to like switch them out every you know every few shots in the target kind of thing then i really didn't want to have the hot melt yeah um so anyway that's what i'm currently set up on a couple bows with is just our head inserts. Um, so I can use standard heads and in, in five millimeter. Okay. What, what's your, what's your preferred, like on your arrow setup, what do you have your head inserts? What are you going to, what are you going to hunt with? Like as far as the grains and, and everything there? <clears throat> yeah. What I've, I'm typically have, um, a 25 grain hit one, one twenty five head and either a 10 or 25 grain collar. So one, you know, one, I would say in general, I'm 150 to 175 up front, and I've got a, a 30 inch jaw shooting. Um, I've got both set up there, 70 pounds or 75, and it's it's hard for me to get much more weight up front than that, um, even in a 250 spine. But the ones I currently have two bows set up, ones at 75, ones at 70, because I'm testing some arrows too, and so I'm, I've got like a, <laughs> a, a one set up for a 260 spine. And there I have the 25 hit um, and I can either, I either go. So I'm also testing a 100 grand head versus a 125. Um, I really got too much going on right before season here, but I, <laughs> I can, uh, I can put on a, a 10 grain collar and the 125 head and have 160 up front, or I can put on the 25 grain collar. Um, and I just leave the collars loose because they're just, like slip fit and they're about a thousandth of an inch slip fit on the axis. So I can put on a 25 grain collar and the hundred grain head and have 150 up front. Um, and that 10 grain doesn't, to me, I hit the same out to hundred yards with a 10 grain total arrow weight difference. Um, I know people get hung up on like a grain or two, but it takes more than that. I mean, it may be an, maybe there's an inch difference at hundred yards, but really not enough to worry about. Um, so currently those are my, my, um, kind of two setups I'm working with. I'm typically, and I probably will stick with it, um, go with a 125 head, 25 grain hit, 10 grain collar, 160 up front. Um, and depending if I'm then 300 spine, it's about 505 grains. Um, it's about, you know, 525. If, if I add lighted knocks, you can add, you know, 15 grains to either one of those, but that's basically my, my hunting setup there. Gotcha. Yeah. Mine, mine's coming in at, so I have a short draw length of 27 and a half. So mine are shorter than yours, but I'm coming at like 
480 grains with the lighted knocks on the back. Do you notice with the weight on the back, does that affect your trajectory at all? Like I felt like in the past, whenever I'd put lighted knocks on my arrows would shoot low, but anymore, I, I don't have any, no difference with it. I have arrows in my quiver right now with both on it and they're both shooting in the same exact spot. Yeah, I would say that, um, lighted knocks, I mean, they're not all created equal and I don't want to bash any in particular, but yeah. Um, you know, when there's holes through them and plungers and things like that, there's just things about them that make them, you know, there's a lot of force that drives through that string into that arrow through the knock. And if there's, um, if, if that changes the force versus just a, a knock that's solid, if it changes, if you push it on one side or another, things like that, it can make them not hit as well. And I, I can tell you, I've struggled in the past getting good groups at long range, um, with lighted knock. So, I mean, that could be part of it. It's like just the geometry and the structure that knock could push your arrow a little, a little different. Another thing could be is if you're kind of borderline um, on the spine, like if you're kind of borderline underspined, small changes in weight, you know, front or back can make, can make you hit a little differently. Mm, um, okay. Whereas if you're, I found if you're like optimally spined or a little stiff on the spine and your bow is really well tuned, small changes, in weights that might affect the dynamic spine have a minimal effect. Um, anyway, that's been my experience. Gotcha. It, and um, what, what you don't have to say which ones you don't like, but which lady knocks do you like? <laughs> <laughs> None of them. None of them. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I mean, to be honest, I don't, <clears throat> there's something I kind of don't like about anyone. The ones I've been, um, the ones I'd say I kind of like the best um, are fire knock because it's a solid knock and there's no, um, so the geometry of the knock is solid between like your string and your arrow and it's a fairly short throat. Um, it, and it works off uh, acceleration. So there's kind of a acceleration sensor in there. There's a circuit board and a battery and things inside there. Uh, so that's what I like about them. I could shoot well at long range with them. They don't, they don't screw up. Um, I think the force going from your string to your arrow. So that's the good news. Um, the bad news is that I've, I've struggled a bit with, um, with reliability. They're a bit tricky to like glue all into your arrow. You have to glue the stop and assemble the little circuit board and, and things can go wrong. So, um, yeah, I, I would say there's not a knock out there that I love, but I do after shooting with lighted knocks for a couple of years, I do like knowing exactly where I hit. And it seems like I do with the light at knock. You know, you just can see that entry point. Um, so I'm a little on the fence with them because yeah. of the issues I've had with them, but they are nice for, and, and, you know, I do a lot of testing in low light situations, hunting hogs, and then you kind of got to have them if you want to find your arrow again. So that's <laughs> part of the reason I've, I've used them uh, more often recently is, is because what I've been test, what I test a lot of single bubbles, um, or if I'm testing off season, I can always go down and shoot a shoot a big boar in Texas and um, and see how they perform. Uh, that makes sense. I I haven't used them in a long time actually, and I and mostly because a lot of the western states don't allow them, or and they're starting to now, but not all of them you know did. And I just didn't want to change my setup, and I just had it done, and I didn't want to think about it anymore. But this year, um, Montana allows it. So I was like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to use them again and, and, and go with that. Cause I, and I do like, especially when I have 
uh, Justin there filming, it's easy to see on a camera for sure with a lighted knock versus not having one. And that helps with the recovery aspect. So that's where, that's one of the things, one of the reasons why I, I switched back to, to, to using them again, but no, I've been I've been playing around with different arrows and stuff this year. I think for well, I know now for elk, I'm going to use those vectors with the the hit, the hit system. I've had a couple other ones that I've been playing around with. The, the Nexus arrows I shot last year, those were a good uh, a good arrow. And then um, uh, also for for whitetails, I might try out the the well, I am trying out the Exodus MMT arrow, which is an interesting one. It's just more of like kind of a standard diameter, but it it shoots it shoots faster if this makes, maybe I'm not using the right terminology, but I don't have the pin gap that I do with the same weight as I do with other arrows. And, uh, from a whitetail standpoint and just using a couple pins that it, it definitely helps, um, at some of those closer ranges, I can basically use that one pin and not have to worry about it as much. So I'm playing around with a bunch of different ones. I have a couple bows set up and, uh, just playing around with it. It's kind of, kind of fun and, and also frustrating at times. <laughs> switching gear <laughs> yeah definitely um and part of the reason i've been playing around so much is i'm i've been doing i feel like one thing that keeps keeps some people from shooting fixed heads and having better i think a more reliable head on there is their um, issues with shooting fixed heads um and a lot of it's you know either the bow is tuned or their arrow is not really set up well for fixed for, it doesn't really stabilize well with a fixed head. So been testing that a lot, trying to get um, just more data to share with people and help people be more successful shooting, shooting our heads um, at whatever range they want to shoot at and having good accuracy. Um, 100% know it can be done. And I just think there's a little bit of education there um, for some people that are just used to shooting. You know, the, if, the, if you're shooting mechanically, because you can't get a fixed head to shoot well for you, um, that can totally be solved with just a little bit of, of effort, you know, if you know, if you know the right things to do, I guess. Yeah. When you, um, I don't want to dive super deep into this, um, as we did in the last time that we talked, but when you're, when you're have your bow set up and you have it tuned and if you go out and you shoot, you know, your, your field points and then your broadheads and they are off a little bit, how are what, what's your process to, to fixing that and getting them to line up? Yeah, it generally means your arrow's not coming straight off your bow. Um, you know, or you, you could be underspined. Um, or you could have a vein that, you could have an arrow that's not very stable because your veins are too small. So it's really kind of those those three things, I think, to, to look at. And, you know, one, you know, for, I'll just say for veins, I like I like a fairly high profile vein. I think that does the best job of stabilizing broadheads, um, like 0.5 inch or taller. Um, that would be like a, a Blazer, a Max Hunter, um, Q, Q2I Fusion 2, um, DCA's veins. Those, all four of those are about that high. Um, you know, Max Stealth is about 0.5, so something that high. Um, or, or higher, I think works, works well. And I like two to three, you know, two and a half, three degrees offset or helical to get rotating. So that's kind of the vein thing. If you're shooting a little target vein, you're going to have trouble. It's just not going to stabilize a broadhead in the front very well. Um, spine, you can figure that out, you know, use 
pinwheel archers advantage software look at look at charts figure out if you're spying properly um you know nominal to a little stiff i think is good for fixed heads if you're the best way to check is your bow really tuned because a lot of guys will say well my pro shop you know shot through paper when they set it up and they told me it was tuned you know last year and uh you know things just go out of tune yeah but one great way to one great way to test is um you know, take a bear shaft um you know if you got a a fletching digged up, dinged up on one of your arrows, just cut the fletchings off and leave a little, leave a little base of it to, add, to keep some weight. This is typically what I do. Cut cut the veins off so you got no vein height really off of that little foot. You know, or you can take a bear shaft, put a couple wraps on it. I just like to get the weight pretty close, but shoot a bear shaft with a field point and then a fletch shaft with a field point. Shoot the two at say 20 yards and 30 yards. And I just did this last night. I put on I put on new strings on my backup bow, got it tuned in, um, been shooting it for about a week, and then I just rechecked the tune. I shot two shafts at 30 yards, and, and they were hitting like half inch apart, and the, and the shafts were parallel. Um, and that's what you should see. And if I take, and I also took that bow out of tune just to test some broadhead stability or vein stability with broadheads. And then with that out of tune, just to get like, just getting like a quarter inch right tear, then I'll get that bear shaft to hit almost a foot left of the flat shaft um, at 40 yards. So to me, that's a great check. If your arrow's coming straight out of your bow, a bear shaft and a flat shaft should hit the same point at say 20, 20, 30 yards, um, 20, 30, 40 really, but um, at least check it at 20, and then uh, I like to check it at 30. It's a little bit more of, of a better indicator. Don't just do it once either, because poor form or whatever will also throw that out. But yeah, if if they're hitting this, if they're hitting say within an inch or two of each other, and the shafts are kind of parallel, and you're saying, okay, that bear shaft is going straight, then you know your bow is tuned, your arrow's coming straight off your bow. If that arrow's coming off, and say it's it's way tail right, that that fletch shaft's going to hit left at the field point. If the arrow comes off tail right, your fletchings will just straighten it back out and it'll make it go pretty straight. So anyway, that's the check. You know, it, those three things, if those three things are good, your fixed head should hit well. Like I took the bow out of tune, shot at 40 yards versus field points. And I couldn't really get much of a difference at all with our, our S or SB series. Then I went to our wide solid, which is the biggest surface area we have and then i could get a significant difference between a field point and that broadhead at 40. so anyways the bigger the broadhead the the less forgiving it is if your bow's out of tune or you just have bad form like you're torquing your bow hard you know it can also be an issue but um that bear shaft versus a flat shaft will show you if your bow's in tune and if your your form's consistent because if you can't do the same thing over and over there then your form's not consistent i would say yeah okay that 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 makes uh that makes a lot of sense i was i've been lucky last couple years that my bows have just been uh been good when when i thought i had them in tune when i set them up in the basement and went out and they've been good and i haven't had to make any adjustments or move anything for it so that's that's been uh it's been positive but I, i mean i've been been shooting those uh fixed heads for a while and haven't had any any issue with them flying that's for sure so um 
I don't know. I'm I'm excited to to get to use the the single bevel. And I was going to wait till later to ask you this, but now that we're on this topic a little bit, what what is the advantage of a single bevel, and when should someone consider that versus a double double bevel? Have you ever wanted to have Levi Morgan, Andy May, Johnny Stewart, and others available at all times? Well, you can with Cyber Scout from Spartan Forge. Cyber Scout is like the Chat GPT for outdoors men and women. You can ask it any questions related to bow building, scouting, hunting, survival, and a whole lot more. I think you'll be impressed with how it responds. Cyber Scout is currently out now for a select group of early beta testers and will be available to the rest of you really soon. The entire app is a complete tool for planning your hunt with incredible aerial imagery mapping, journaling, deer prediction, and some of the most accurate and detailed weather data. Use the code EASTMEETSWEST to save 20%. And if you're still on the fence, give the 14-day free trial a chance at SpartanForge.ai. CVA has been America's number one selling muzzleloader brand for over a decade. Hunting with a muzzleloader opens up a ton of hunting opportunities across the U.S. And I've been using the Acura series. But they don't only make badass muzzleloaders. Their line of centerfire rifles are great quality and not terrible on the wallet. The Cascade short barrel is ideal for tight quarters, deer drives, and quick shots in the big woods. You can check out their line of muzzleloaders, rifles, and accessories for every season and every range at bpioutdoors.com slash CVA. If you use the code EASTMEETSWEST10, you'll get 10% off of all CVA products, which includes rifles, muzzleloaders, and accessories. Yeah, it's... You know, I think performance is great for me each. I get that question a ton. Yeah. Um, and, and really there, there's, there's some kind of mi- minor trade-offs to me the what's more important is kind of sharpness, edge retention, durability, you know, um, having high end materials and very sharp blades that stay sharp and can be durable and make it through bones, things like that. To me, that's all more important than which type of bevel ground on the edge of it but um let's say you had all that already and then just which one do you want um i think they both penetrate really great i think i would say inherently a double bevel has a little better combination of of say sharpness edge retention and durability when it's going through something hard like heavy bone just because the pressures on both sides of that bevel at once is it's just driving through um Whereas on a single bevel, all the pressure's on one side of that edge, and it's just more likely to want to bend it over or chip it out. And and I had to I had to play around with that angle and get that. We use like a 32 degree angle, and at that angle, I got the edges strong enough to go through bone um, without damage. But really, at 25, which is kind of a kind more common in the industry. Um, I just didn't have the strength that one. I was getting a little bit of edge damage on really heavy bone. Um, so anyway, I would say, and, and then also if you're hitting rocks in the dirt and stuff like that, I feel like, well, I mean, that, that's hard on any edge, but yeah. I think that, <laughs> um, double bevel may have a slight advantage there, but you know, rocks and hitting steel and things like that, you can kind of count on, you're going to get some edge damage. Um, so that's kind of the advantage of double bevel. Penetration is great. It's just going to slice straight through. And I don't think you can necessarily beat it for max penetration. The uh, single bevel, the cool things there, that that side pressure 
that pressure on one bevel and they're all and you know you get pressure on one side of the top and the other side of the bottom and it creates this rotation through the animal and it really instead of having these straight slices through you get like these ro rotating cuts and it opens up the holes pretty good um i like it with the bleeder in there too a single bevel with our single bevel bleeder in that rotation you get almost a square hole through the hide and and as you look at the tissue it there's more there's more trauma to it it's kind of spinning it up as it's cutting it and um so wound channels are are nice a lot of bleeding um a little bit more open holes entrance exit more blood on the ground um potentially so and i've and i originally thought they wouldn't penetrate quite as well as double bevel because of that rotation but what i've seen in testing is that they penetrate really well and i feel it's because you got that rotational momentum of that arrow already kind of providing some of that torque as it rotates through i haven't really seen a, a reduction in penetration i guess over double bevels they're both doing they're both doing great penetrating through bone great so it's it's more of a personal opinion which which of those sounds better to you and go with it um, yeah. i think they both they both perform really well gotcha um so okay so to kind of transition a little bit here i wanted to talk to you about shot placement and as you know you know basically with the different types of heads and kind of how you look at shot placement with animals so like when if you have an elk or um and this may vary between animals elk or deer but if you have the you know the perfect shot you know broadside shot where's your like aiming point on that do you stay tight to the shoulder do you back off a little bit or how does that look like for you i mean personally i stay tight to the shoulder i try to hit the the top of the heart lungs um <clears throat> if i'm shooting if i'm shooting deer that are known to be super jumpy i might even aim like low heart um and depending if i'm in like alabama or texas but i'm generally um just in general on an animal, whether it's a deer, um, white-tailed deer, mule deer, elk, caribou, whatever, I'm pretty tight to that shoulder up into that vital B, kind of where the top of the heart lung area would be. And there's a couple reasons. One is that's where they're gonna die fast. I mean, they're gonna be like dead. I wanna be dead in five seconds and drop in sight. And I think that can happen with that shot. And I think it doesn't happen when you aim, when you hit the back of the lungs, even if you get a double lung, but you hit in the back edges, those, those lobes that are further back. Um, well, for one, you can, you can miss the, the opposite. You might only catch one and then it can be a long, you know, a longer, slower death. Um, or yeah, uh, depending if you get liver and, and guts or whatever, but even the back lobes of the lungs, um, I've seen animals keep breathing for minutes, but, with those and i'm trying to figure that out you know my my brother's a doctor i've i've got another doctor in town i've tried to understand <laughs> that but you know you can basically cut off the some of the lobes of the lungs and they can they could potentially live right and a person can live with a lobe removed from his lungs so i think i it seems like if you hit those back lobes you know higher back that sometimes uh, it definitely just takes longer for the animal to die i think eventually you get air in there and the lungs collapse but Anyway, it could be more like a minute instead of five seconds. So yeah. personally, I yeah. like to shoot for the quickest kill possible, be dead in sight, um, you know, ha have a, as ethical, quickest kill as you can. But we can talk into this more later, but you need a broadhead that if you do hit a little bit of bone there, 
you won't have a problem with it. Yep, and that's that's exactly what I was what I was thinking. And that's and that's why I mean that's kind of where my shot placement is when I'm when I'm shooting at an NY stay tight to the tight to the shoulder for the most part because I don't want to end up hitting too far back if there is a little bit of margin of error and then all of a sudden you have a lot longer of a track job um the animal has to suffer for a longer period of time all of those different things and i feel confident that if i do you know hit that blade or anything not the the main shoulder bone but the blade that it uh that my setup is going to do okay in that situation yeah it it bugs me whenever i hear and i hear it a fair amount on TV shows and by, you know, kind of, um, influencers out there, I guess that, um, they shoot mechanicals and just aim back off the shoulder. Um, and yeah, I just think it's, it's not as lethal of a shot. It's a slower death. Um, so I don't like that. And I know why they do it. They've had bad experiences hitting shoulders, hitting just scapula and not, not getting through and that's pushed them to shoot further and further back. Um, but I don't like that personally. I don't like it when that's recommended. I just feel like hitting hitting further back is just a, a slower death. And you can, especially on a deer sized animal. Um, and it, you know, a lot of the whitetail shots are tree stand elevated shots, man, you, you can get, you can totally get through scapula with the right broadhead. Um, so that really shouldn't be, I mean, it's, it's up to the person and their setup and what they want to do. And if, if you're satisfied with broadside shots only, aiming a little back or quartering away shots, um, and you want to shoot a mechanical or, you know, a head that's not going to penetrate that well, you know, it, a lot of people get that to work for them, and that's, that's what they want to do. Personally, I really like shooting in a spot where it's going to die quickly and going through bone if you need to. Yeah. And, and, and you brought up a good point, the angle, even if it's broadhead, if you're in a tree stand or even, even if you're out West and you're, you know, shooting down or shooting up, that's going to, uh, it's going to cause your, you know, your arrow to enter in different places. You can't just aim at the, the exact same spot. Do you, do you have like a visualization? Like if you're looking, say you have an elk, uh, down below you and I don't know exactly what angle, but are you like visualizing where your arrow is going to come out? Like, how are you looking at that to know where to put your pin at? Yeah, I'm thinking about, um, you know, and this has changed over time. There was a time when I just hunted white to elk. Many years ago, just hunted white tails and only took like broadside or quartering way shots. And, and anything like quartering two or frontal was just like off the board. I wasn't even thinking about it. But the more and more that I've I've shot through bones and testing and shot a lot of animals at frontals, quartering two, broadside, quartering away, straight down, you know, and had the and had these experiences to know what what can work and what is not gonna work. Um I'm really kind of envisioning, okay, where are the, where's the heart and the two lungs, no matter what, what angle they're at. And if it's a frontal or slight quartering or, um, or hard quartering to slight quartering to quartering away, I'm always kind of like thinking about where, where are the bones and where are the, uh, the heart and lungs. And I'm pretty much going to aim for the top of the heart lung area from, from any angle, if there's nothing, um, too solid in the way, basically. What, what do you consider as too solid? Like, is there a certain part of the leg bone that, that, uh, will interfere with that? Or what, what, what do you consider as too solid for an arrow setup? Like you have in broadhead setup? 
Yeah, and this would be depend a bit on the animal yeah. we're talking about. Um, on on deer sized game, um, personally, all I would kind of avoid is like a straight knuckle shot. Um, and but I'm really not going to have that shot anyways. You know, the last uh, the last two mule deer I shot, for instance, was were quartering two shots, and I was. The way I've been getting some mule deer lately is um, putting some decoys out and getting into a tree stand, um, putting up a quick tree stand. And so they were like, came into the decoy, quartering on, and they stopped. And they're like, something's up. And I knew I was going to either have that shot or not. And I'm shooting tight into the V, but I'm also slightly elevated. So if I hit a little forward, it's scapula. It's somewhere on that shoulder bone. Um, or it's going to slip right in the V just behind the shoulder bone, but I'm shooting in a place where it's going to be a double lung. And one of those two shots, I didn't hit any bone. It just slipped right in that V and went through both lungs and, and he died quickly. And the other one, I went right through that shoulder bone, um, went through the shoulder bone, exited back by the opposite side, hind leg stuck in the ground. So I know, I know in a deer sized game with, you know, an iron will broadhead in the front and I'm sure their heads could work for this too. But what I, the way I describe that is, uh, you know, very, um, very durable kind of premium steel that's hard enough and tough enough that it can go through bone without really bending or breaking. Um, and anyway, I know that that broadhead is going to win against bone, you know, every time it's going to, it's going to cut through the bone. Um, and penetration is not really going to be an issue on a deer-sized animal with with the shoulder bone. Um, anyways, they went right through the bone and also very quick kill. And on on whitetail as well, like my um, my brother last year had a slight quartering on down downward shot on a whitetail buck. He went through the near side scapula and cut the offside femur bone into and then stuck it in the ground. We walked up on his buck and the, you know, the leg bone was sticking out like a compound fracture, just cut clean. And I also shot, cut through the femur bone on my white tail, but it was on the, it was on the exit. I didn't shoot into the femur on purpose, but it cut it on the exit hole and stuck in the ground. So anyway, deer sized animals um, with the right, you know, I'm shooting about a 500 grain arrow, um, a very sharp, durable cut on contact head. You know, I know a deer sized animal, it's going to go through the scapula. So I'm comfortable with a, um, a frontal or quartering two or quartering away or straight down through the spine with, with that. Um, I'm not going to try and shoot like, you know, through a hip socket, you know, there's, there's some things that are just kind of unreasonable, but the shoulder bone, really, if you look at it, um, anywhere up, I'm not going to aim right, right at the knuckle either. Although I know I can cut through them in my testing of just shooting through those bones but if you're up from the knuckle that bone isn't really that thick in fact at the upper part of it which is what you're going to hit a lot of times on a downward tree stand shot it's pretty thin it's thinner than the rib mm -hmm. um but the issue is a lot of three blades that wear say aluminum ferrule or even thin blades things are going to bend and and break on bone contact suck up a lot of energy and can keep you from passing through. Um, and then of course, mechanicals are not likely to get through, um, cause they're going to bend and things will flex and they'll suck up a lot of energy as well. They might get through. Um, but a lot of times they won't. 
Yeah. Okay. That, that makes sense. And you know, and that's like the quartering two shot is like probably one of the hardest shots. If you, if you think about it from, from that aspect of where the vitals are and like what I, what I try to do before every season, I like pull up the anatomy of elk and deer at different angles and kind of see and you you'll be surprised and even you know if you don't look at it very much of where you think things are and where they're you know supposed to be at and visualizing that um i i did i screwed up a shot on uh, my third whitetail that i shot last year i was on the ground in west virginia and this this came down to a couple different things one it's it's on video so the, the buck came in and he hit a scrape and when he was i called him in on the ground and i thought he was straight quartering or uh, straight on with me basically with the slight quartering too but when he went up and hit the scrape on his hind legs he came down and he was angled harder than uh than i expected and i was looking through my peep sight and two things happened so i couldn't see that he changed a little bit and then also i had the yardage wrong because i had ranged the tree and he was actually where that branch went further back than it was and it put him at like 38 yards versus 33 and i ended up cutting low across his leg and brisket and uh the deer ended up living uh based off of that but i was super confident in that shot if i would have had the the yardage down right and and being able to to be able to hit that because i was visualizing where those vitals were where the bones were and and um especially off the ground it's i i feel like you have a a better better a bigger window of, of opportunity versus when you do from like an elevated position um, I don't, I don't know how many whitetails my dad has killed frontal or quartering two off the ground, um, over the years. And it's just, it's a, it's a, can be a really lethal shot if you're, if you're confident and you're shooting there and you're set up. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, the, the, the window is just a bit smaller for what you can hit. You know, I think on a, on an elk, it's fairly big on a deer it gets, it gets smaller. Um, I shot I shot an odd ad on a frontal shot and it was just and it depends if it's perfectly frontal or just or just slightly slightly quartering two at an angle. You know, if it's slightly quartering two, you really wanna not not shoot that, you know, hollow the base of the neck, but a little bit, you know, split that and the shoulder blade. Um, so you catch you catch them both long. So if if you're taking those um, frontal or very slight quartering two, um, and then there's some angle probably that it's not that great of a shot because if, if you go inside the shoulder, you're going to maybe only hit one long. And if you if you go outside the shoulder at that steep at that steep angle on the scapula, depending on which head you're shooting, it might it might not penetrate it that well. Um, or you might if it does, you might still be hitting one long going back. So you really kind of got to know have the anatomy clear in your head and and um you know be confident in you, that your shot's going to hit you know both lungs or the heart when you take those those frontal or very slight quartering too and you know we're going to get bashed for even saying to take these shots because i think um a lot of people just feel like they're not an ethical shot with a bow but i feel like if you understand anatomy um and you have the right setup and you kind of understand what what bones you can get through at what angles i, I totally feel like um, it can be done. 
done successfully. Yeah. I was I was going to put a disclaimer on this too. Is like basically you, you have to be know your setup very well and understand your confidence in your shooting. This isn't uh, this isn't uh, you know first time bow hunting. Probably not your best you know opportunity for for a shot. But I mean the amount of testing that that you do and you go through it and understand it. Like you're you're very confident and it is a very ethical shot when you are confident in that and confident in your setup versus uh just kind of winging it from from that perspective because i mean th- there's there's a lot that can go wrong with those quartering shots with only hitting one lung and and if you're too far back like if you if you're behind the shoulder when they're quartering two there's a good chance you only catch one lung and maybe liver or guts or whatever and it, you know is a is a little bit different so um i, I yeah, think we- i think that's a good point Well, I'm shooting a new bow this year and I am pumped. After playing around with a buddy's Hoyt RX-8, the smile on my face made the decision for me. The first thing I noticed with the new Hoyts were their extremely smooth draw cycles and the ability to adjust the back wall to make it rock solid like I prefer. I outfitted my own RX-8 with the inline accessories that made installation extremely easy and balanced out the bow. My favorite accessory so far is a simple one. It's the Go Sticks 2.0 adjustable legs to make your bow like a tripod, but it doesn't interfere with any part of the bow or the limbs or anything like that. In addition, the integrated kickstand within the HBX Exact Cams protect your string from excess wear when you put your cam into the dirt. Ground hunting or spot and stock just got easier. If you want to experience what I'm talking about, head to your nearest Hoyt dealer and take a test drive yourself. You can learn more at Hoyt.com. The Mobile Hunters Expo is a consumer-based hunting show unlike any other. It provides an interactive learning experience where you can try all things mobile hunting and learn from the best in the business. Come experience an unbiased, community-based environment where you can improve your hunting skills and find the right equipment for your needs. I'll be speaking at the Nor'easter Show in Mannheim, Pennsylvania at Spooky Nook Sports from August 9th to 11th, 2024. So come check it out or either of the other shows in uh, Michigan and Georgia. You can purchase tickets online at themobilehuntersexpo.com or grab tickets at the door. I'll see you there. Yeah, we should probably emphasize that, isn't it? Um, this is kind of a master's class on anatomy and shot placement because, yeah, I mean, personally, I try and get, I try and be a more successful bow hunter every year. A lot of the work I do, a lot of my decisions are based on, is this going to make me a more successful bow hunter? And, you know, then I, I work on those things. And so I'm trying to, I'm trying to make the most of any, any opportunity I can get. And that's made me, you know, practice longer distance, extended my range, made me understand anatomy better made, you know, understand animal behavior, which animals are likely to move, which are not. Um, so there's a lot to that. And I would say for, for beginners, if you're kind of new into bow hunting, just do the, just stick with a broadside quartering way shot. Don't try the quartering on until you're more familiar, I guess, or put the time into, you know, learning anatomy, where the organs are at, where the bones are at. And, and, and can you make a, cause, cause the shot windows are tighter too and can you make that tight accurate shot you know under pressure in that moment when adrenaline's high and all those other things are going on yeah no i know you're 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 spot on and like you know and and same thing with like for me personally this is my thing but like if i have a frontal shot i have a limited a lot 
more of a limited yardage that I will take that shot versus a broadside quartering away shot based on how I feel about my capabilities of hitting a smaller spot, you know, under pressure and everything. And just because, you know, you shoot a target well at 60 yards all the time doesn't mean that that's your maximum effective range, uh, you know, f- for that. Because there's, there's a lot of other external factors, including, uh, you know, adrenaline and everything else that kind of kicks in at that point that can make things an animal behavior, how alert they are, things like that, that, that can definitely affect that. Yeah, for sure. And if, and yeah, it's, there's also this um, assessment of, is this animal going to move when you're taking the shot? Like I'll, I'll, I'll pass up broadside shots. If the animal's like alert and, you know, looking at me, (laughs) I'm going to, I know that that animal's going to move. And especially if it's a longer shot, um, that animals, you know, if you can't take a 50 yard shot or, even a 40 yard shot an animal that's on high alert looking at you um at least not you know a white tail or one of the species that are likely to move on you you know they're going to be gone by the time your arrow gets there so yeah that's part of the assessment as well yeah oh yeah definitely and, and it depends on where you're at even within like white tails you know certain states are a lot cagier i've seen videos of them dropping at 20 yards or spinning or doing whatever and i just watched a video of someone trying to shoot a pronghorn the other day and and same thing it was like a 40 yard shot they were looking at the the antelope was looking at them and and you know by the time that arrow was on its way there that thing had spun all the way around it was it was crazy yeah and that's what you know and with the whole whitetail world at one time i think we were a lot of people said we had kind of an elk specialty broadhead and it was overkill for whitetails. And, and I didn't really disagree, but at the same time, I hunt a lot of whitetails too. I'm going to hunt whitetails in four states this year. And I actually have, um, I actually need our broadhead more often on whitetails than elk because they move so frequently, you know, they, they duck and spin into it. And, you know, even if you're, and, and, I get that question a lot. Well, why do you want to shoot? Or I'll tell people, shoot our whitehead instead of a, a mechanical. It's going to give you a two and eighth inch total cut. Um, but yet it's going to go through the scapula if you hit one. And they're like, well, I, I wouldn't aim at it. I aim back. Well, there's really two things that can happen. Um, you know, you can you can purposely take a shot where you might hit it, you know, open up your different shot angles. The other thing is well, the animal can just move and make you hit it when you didn't want to. You know, it can duck and turn into it. And that's happened to me pretty frequently um, in recent years where, especially when I've hunted in states like Alabama and Texas, where, man, those deer are keyed up. They get hunted um, five months out of the year, and they're often hunted over corn feeders, and they're used to being hunted, and they are on high alert. And even even if you're not hunting over a feeder, just taking that shot, they're, they're moving. Um, so, yeah, if they're ducking, turning, and give me that shoulder blade. Um, yeah, you know, that's happened to me a few times recently just because of a move. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's such a good point is the, the movement aspect of them. And, you know, so one thing, as far as like from a, a beginner level, explain even like with like the quartering away shot, kind of how your thought process is of, all right, where you're going to aim based off that, because, you know, when an animal's turned, you don't just aim behind the shoulder, no matter what, and just kind of explain how you, how you look at that shot. 
yeah, you got to kind of picture in 3D where the where the organs are. I guess if you're um, if it's quartering away, you're you're aiming further back. You know, more towards the opposite. Look more like at the opposite leg where that would be, or just in front of the opposite leg. Um, you know, what I try to do is is picture like where's the top of the heart lung area, and if you if you if you cut like the top of the heart, you can hit both lungs on the way through there. And that's kind of what I try and picture, whether it's, you know, in broadside or quartering away, and it's just going to swing my aim point back a little bit on, on the animal, the more they quarter away. And to the point where if they're, I mean, I don't shoot when they're straight away, although a buddy of mine did on elk last year, right below the tail and actually came out, you know, the brisket, um, I would not recommend that. There's a lot of, you know, you get hit bone socket, whatever, but it can be a steep quartering way where um, I've done this on an elk, actually sliced the, the meat of the hind quarter. And then, um, and in that case, it came out on the, on the opposite side, just in front of the brisket. So it actually, it actually went through the top of the heart, but it was, you know, full length on that elk to get there. And then it was a very, you know, I was basically aiming at the hind quarter, but I was looking at, Where's where's the heart going to be? Where do I want it to exit that animal? Gotcha. And with um, okay, so like now flipping it a little bit, and you're looking at like a a frontal shot, and if someone were to take that shot, how, you know, like for me when I look, it depends on the animal of how big it is. But like you know, say like a white tail, you have a little bit, probably like a softball size spot, maybe even a little bit smaller. There's like a gap inside the the cavity there. Is that how are you looking at the, the frontal shots, I guess? Yeah, the, the, the base of the, at the base of the neck, you know, and there's a little kind of hollow spot there. And on a, on a bull elk, say it's, it's where it goes from that dark neck hair to the, to the light, right? At that base of that is, is a good aiming point on an elk. If, as you go down from that, you'll start seeing the brisket bone, um, protruding like if you look at the very bottom of the animal coming up you see that brisket bone and then it'll kind of stop and then it'll just be kind of a hollow there and the in the ribs from the brisket will they'll go up around and they'll be just inside of the shoulders um and the ribs um anyways at the very front there's this area between the shoulders where there's still some ribs and then inside of that there's nothing but a you know softball size hole at least in a, an elk is probably a softball. The deer is probably a little bit smaller than that. But mm-hmm. I mean, if it's straight frontal, that's what I'm aiming for. Trying to just slip it in, not even hit a rib, just go through that, cut through the, and then you're kind of going right at the top of the heart lung area there. Um, if there's a very slight quartering one way or the other, and, and I'm talking very slight here, and this is how I shot my audit a few years ago. Um, I just aim a little bit to the, to the, to the side of that. So I hit, you know, a little bit I hit inside the shoulder blade yet, but I cut through a rib or two. Um, and then it caught both lungs instead of one and in, in the top of the heart that way. Um, anyway, that's kind of how I'm, I'm, I'm looking at that shot. If, if it's a little bit quartering, I wouldn't shoot necessarily straight for that hollow because then you might only hit the one lung and not two. So at that point, are you hugging tighter to the shoulder then? If you're, if it's quartering two a little more, I am. Yeah. On the shoulder, let's say if it's quartering two, the shoulder that's going to be closer to me, a little bit closer to me, I'm hugging 
and now again, these are small angles. This isn't a 45. This is yeah. like, this angle is like this angles are like 10 degrees or something like that. I'm I'm hanging a little bit more tighter to that shoulder, um, but yet inside that shoulder. And and I'm envisioning, okay, I want this to pass through both lungs. Do I need to aim a little bit to the right to hit that the near side lung and the far side lung in that case? No, I, that uh, that totally makes sense. And how does that change with that frontal shot at an angle? You know, like I, I've done it before and I won't do it again, at least from my perspective of shooting down at, because it's, that's, that hole seems to be a lot smaller. What are what are your thoughts on that? Maybe you'll be able to change my thoughts on it. Yeah. The frontal, um, the straight frontal shots I've taken have been from the ground, mm -hmm. um, on animals and a straight frontal from a tree stand. I mean, you're, uh, you might you know, they might be hitting them right in the head, right? Yeah. If, uh, <laughs> especially if they, if they drop. Um, I don't know that a straight frontal, it, I guess it would depend on what angle you're at. Um, but I don't think a steep downward angle of frontals is, um, is great if it just feels like the head's kind of in the way. I guess you'd have to lay out the shot ex exactly in the photo and we have to talk through, does that make yeah. sense or not? Yeah, I think the frontal's more of a ground shot to me, a straight frontal. Um, you can have a, I know a lot of guys, I personally haven't had this shot, but I know like Snyder says he's taken a lot where there's a slight quartering too steep downward where he splits like the neck and the shoulder and goes into the vitals um, and kills a lot of deer that way. Um, for me, it's been more of, it's out, the deer's out there a bit more. And these have been on recent two mule deer is what I'm thinking of where it's not a steep downward, but it's kind of an angle downward and it's more of a 45 and I can kind of, and the shoulder's more almost flat to me and I can try and thread it in right in that tight V under that shoulder blade, um, a scapula there. But if I hit the scapula, it's going to go through it anyways. And what's behind it is, is the two lungs. So that's, those are the shots that, um, as far as from an elevated stand in that, frontal or quartering two it's i've done it when it's more like a quartering two where i know it's it's um it's scapula there if it's like a straight frontal downward steep um i don't know you might actually end up going in front of the heart if it's too steep i i, I don't know i don't i don't necessarily think that's a great shot yeah from my elevator stand yeah no that 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 totally makes sense and so okay now now thinking about you you make a shot um, typically like what, what do you think as far as like after you make the shot and you have a pretty good idea of where you hit, what, how, how long do you wait? You know, like, okay. So based on like, say, um, you know, you think you hit double lung and heart, you normally see them go down in sight or hear them go down and then kind of progressing towards the, the worst side of it. How do you look at that? Yeah. If all goes well, if all goes to plan, <laughs> you, you die in sight. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, especially in open country and out West that that's typically what happened if it, if it went right. Um, and it, sometimes the country's you know, cover so thick, it's, he can, he could have gone 20 yards. You can't see him. So, I mean, that doesn't always work out, but, um, yeah, if you think about like my, my bear, I shot a couple months ago, I shot, it looked like a good spot. Um, actually freaked out on this one because the arrow didn't go through and I couldn't figure out what happened. I saw my lighted knock on my near side of the bear, but I actually pinned him. I actually shot in, I buried that arrow into a tree and that's what stopped the, uh, the shot. Um, 
anyway, but you know, the, the bear ran off, it ran off fast, disappeared into some thick cover. Um, I'm typically, if I don't see the animal go down, I'm typically waiting like, um, 30, 45 minutes just to go down and look at my arrow and assess kind of what might've happened. Um, and it's better with light and knock, but a lot of times you don't really, you can't always trust what you thought, what you thought happened or where you thought you hit it. Um, especially that animal spins on you. It can be kind of questionable. Um, and a lot of times when you're, you know, your critical thinking can sometimes be poor in times of high adrenaline. What yeah. you thought happened, when you tell the story of what you thought happened, it, it can be off from what really did happen, right? Um, yeah, but typically I'm waiting 30, 45 minutes. It depends on the cover and how close I think the animal might be. Um, yeah, I might even wait longer or just back out. But if I think I can safely get to where my arrow would have hit and assess the situation without bumping or pushing the animal, you know, I'll do that. And then when I'm looking at the, the arrow or the blood on the arrow, assessing, did I hit, you know, what did I hit at that point? Heart, lungs, liver, guts, you know, and then I'm making a decision based on that. Yeah. And what do you, do you have a certain amount of time if you like, okay, you look at the arrow and you're like, all right, this, there's some dark blood on there. It looks like maybe I hit the liver. Do you, then does that determine like how many hours that you wait for it? like before you track from that standpoint? It would, and conditions can change on this a bit. Like um, what's the animal? What's he likely to do? How long do they take to die? Do I care? Is a is it a pig? Do I care? I mean, not that pigs, you know, should be less valued, <laughs> I guess. But um, to be honest, when I'm on, on pig patrol, um, you know, this ranch lets us on to just shoot as many pigs as we can with our bows. And, and we can't, we can't wait till next day because we can't even get on there the next day. So we're, we're pushing that right away. Um, trying to put another shot up when you do. So all that would kind of go into there. Let's say it's just like a giant white tail buck that I am totally excited about that. I got, I want to like the best chance of getting this animal. Yeah. Then I'm, I'm waiting based on what I see and it looks like good heart long. I still might wait a little bit, but, um, you know, an hour is going to be, um, you know, it should actually be dead in, you know, a minute or something. So, you know, I'm probably going to go pretty quickly there. I'll look and see how much blood am I seeing right from the shot. If it all looks good, bright red blood, you know, heart, lung, arteries around, you know, main arteries, things like that. I'm, I'm on it pretty quick then. Um, that that's best case. It might be within in 30 minutes. If I didn't see it go down, I might still be on it then in 30, 45 minutes. If it's darker blood, um, you know, real dark blood, like that liver blood, or even some of the gut intestinal blood can be that really dark, um, mm. black, almost black. Um, then, then I'm typically waiting. If I think it's, um, liver, you know, I might go six hours or something like that. Um, if it's an antelope, I'm probably less. What I found is I can gut shoot an antelope and the thing is dead in like an hour and a half. That I think they're weaker animals. <laughs> and, and I mean, I saw that. I had an animal antelope back and it went and bedded down. And I was trying to figure out how to get in for a stalk, circled around on it. And then the thing died. And that was just a that was only one hour on a straight gut shot. It just bolted forward at my shot and I hit it back. Um, I was trying to get in there and kill it as quick as I could. And it was dead in an hour. Whereas some 
um, animals will be eight to 12 hours for a, just a straight bite hit his intestines I've seen. So anyway, yeah, um, a liver, I'm probably waiting like four to six and, and uh, got shot maybe even eight to 12, you know, leave them overnight, something like that. Yeah. And weather, all that stuff kind of always plays a role in it. One thing that I learned last year from the buck my dad shot he was unsure where the arrow went. Mostly, you know, as you get the adrenaline flowing, you start second guessing yourself. And even though it felt good, he's like, I don't know, you know, this is what happened. And he waited, I don't know, a little over an hour to get down and look at his arrow and it had dark red blood on it. Well, what it ended up being was the blood had actually dried and it dried darker than it was at the beginning. And so we thought liver and waited six hours and then went in and then we started finding it was double lung I mean, the deer was dead in 60 yards. It just went it went out of sight and it didn't make a loud crash. And it was, you know, it was dead. But sometimes it can can throw you off a little bit, uh, depending yeah. on how, how that goes. I mean, it's just there. I, I feel like the whole blood trailing aspect is always such a difficult thing to to be able to judge, especially when you don't know exactly where you hit and uh, how to how to go with that. But I'm 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 with you on I. You know, unless I see it fall in sight, I usually wait in the stand 45 to 60 minutes before I'll get out, like when I'm deer hunting, just before. And I can't really speak on the elk side because the only bull that I shot, I'd watched him fall over. So that was a little bit of a different story. But that's that's just kind of, I've always tried to be a little bit more patient with it and um, make sure. Yeah, and weather conditions will depend too. Like I, I've been fooled a couple of times because... Um, Maybe it's a steep quartering away, um, or or a slight quartering too, where I'll I'll catch some intestines or stomach, even though it was a double lung shot. Um, it's just that that's where it exited because it was a slight quartering too, but I actually did get both lungs, and it's you know it's dead right over this hill right here. Um, and then if the weather conditions, if it's warm, I don't really want to wait eight hours, especially if I shot it in the morning. So. Sometimes that enters into it too. Like, does this make sense from the shot I think I made? Um, and then if the conditions, you know, I might push a little more than I would um, if I'm concerned about the meat and meat spoilers, depending on the weather conditions. Yeah, no, no, 100, 100%. And even rain and things that could, you know, wash away the blood and everything comes comes to the fact when I'm, when I'm thinking about it there for sure. Yeah. And, and, uh, the, the last last thing I want to talk to you about more kind of goes back to your broadheads. But, you know, the argument with the, the fix versus the mechanical side standpoint with blood trailing, how, why, why are your heads like, why do you think that they still are not? Why do you think, why do they, uh, why do they still, you know, leave a good blood trail? Why, how, how does a, a, a fixed head leave a good blood trail that compares to a, a mechanical? Is it to come down to the design of it? Or how does, how do you, you know, you kind of explain a little bit with a single bevel kind of spinning in there and, and, and cutting and making that square hole, but uh, elaborate on that a little bit, if you would. Yeah. You know, it's always going to be the size of the head. Um, and I say that, you know, the size of the head, um, and the, the sharpness edge retention are, are going to kind of be key to how much blood you're going to get. Um, and that's, I didn't realize that when I started broadhead development, you know, what has it been 15 years ago now, something like that. But, um, but 
about how much sharpness and edge retention matters. And a lot of the cheaper blades you buy, by the time they're through the hide, um, they're not they're not really sharp anymore. And by the time they go through a rib, for sure they're not. And they push a lot of tissue aside. And so you can't just go by size. You know, if you're like an inch and a quarter, three blade would be like one point, around 1.8 inch, just total cut. And people will think about that, like, okay, based on this size, I'll get a certain hole and a certain amount of bleeding. Well, it'll vary a lot depending on if the blades are sharp and slicing all the way through or not, or if they're pushing tissue apart. So one main thing you can do to get the most blood on the ground and the quickest kill, you know, the animal's going to die. And if the lungs don't collapse, um, you're cutting arteries, it's going to bleed out. And, you know, the blood loss is what you need to get a good blood trail. Um, so sharpness, edge retention is key. So even our heads that are fairly compact, at least they are slicing all the, all the way through and giving you kind of the best possible amount of blood um, and blood, you know, inside and, and out on the animal. So that's key. Make sure things are sharp and that they don't go dull by the time they go through the, the hide or rib. And then it comes down to kind of size. Um, a single slice, two blade won't, um, won't give you... Well, it might give you a great blood trail, but it might give you a poor blood trail. That single slice can sometimes close up. So, you know, adding a cross cut with a bleeder um, or a three blade will typically give you a better hole, better holes for blood to come out than just a straight two blade. Um, and then, and then the size, you know, um, what I would say is like our wide cut, which is an inch and a three eighths main blade, three quarter inch bleeder. So two and an eighth inch total cut that thing with it being sharp and slicing all the way through just we don't i don't show a lot of my blood trails because it's just there's some there can be a, just a ton of blood with that big of cut and slicing all the way through um i feel like you're going to get a blood, better blood trail than that than a mechanical because those edges aren't sharp and they're pushing a lot of tissue as you're going through and also they often don't get a full penetration mm -hmm. um Anyway, I'm a bit biased against mechanicals, as you can tell, but <laughs> yeah. in this place, it's going to be kind of size, sharpness. And then the other thing is this rotation of the single bevel. Um, and in order, I'd kind of say a two blade with no bleeders would be, can kind of give you potentially the least blood trail. And then a, a two blade single bevel give you some rotation. So it opens it up a bit more, but then e either a double bevel with bleeders would probably be next. Cause I think that cross cut helps you more than just the rotation when it's a small amount of, um, well, that can be, be debated, but I think a, a double bevel with bleeders uh, does a great job too. And then the double bevel or the single bevel with single bevel bleeders where you get that rotation is probably the, the most trauma for that, you know, size of a head, I would say. Um, yep. Anyway, those, those are all factors that kind of affect how much bleeding, how quick it kills, how much blood you get on the ground. Yeah, and then all this comes down to, you know, people are choosing what heads work for them, kind of determining what your um, priorities are and what you kind of want, and it can help, you know, although it's such a minor difference probably between the two from, you know, from the single to double bevel and everything that we discussed, but at least it, 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 can, it can help you make that decision instead of thinking about it for too long. <laughs> yeah, a lot, of it's, a lot of it's confidence. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll tell even, even my friends or other other people I know in the industry, they'll ask me, they try to shoot single bubble or double bubble. And I'll just explain to them the differences between them. They both were great. I've been alternating them on elk recently. Um, and man, I, I can't say the performance, it lacks on either one of them at all. They're both doing great. And 
lot of it's confidence. Like, all right, you've told you the story, told you how they perform for me. Which one are you more excited about? Or which one give you more confidence? Just pick that and go with it. You know? Yeah, no, definitely. No. And, and, um, for anyone that doesn't know and hasn't listened to the other podcast with Bill, he shot a lot of elk and uh, deer in the past. So he's got a lot of experience with these. <laughs> That's for sure. Well, I, I think, um, not, I mean, I love hunting, of course, so that's why I want to do it anyways, but I also feel like, um, I want to keep, I want to keep improving products. I want to keep observing what happens. I want to keep improving my level of bow hunting and, and, you know, at this point I want to bring others along too, help everybody be more successful. But if you're not out in the field using the, using the products, um, testing them often in all the conditions, I don't know how you can make them better. So it's, um, you know, it's a rough job, but somebody's got to do it. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, is is uh, all right. So here, here's one last question, then I'm I'm gonna let you go. Will Iron Will ever come out with a bulletproof expandable broadhead? Man, I don't know if I can never say never. Um, I do get that question a ton. Um, and I mean, I did mechanism designs for other companies for 25 years. I feel like I could make a better one. But um, all that being all that being said is, man, I really don't. I don't want to make something that I don't think is better than what we currently have. And and. Uh, it, you know, at one time, it was the reason I didn't want to go to single bevels because I felt like I double bevels better. But I built it, tested it, saw it had performed great. You know, I had some good advantages. So I came out with it. Um, my current thinking is no, I'm not currently planning to. I know a lot of people want it. Um, but man, shoot our wideheads if you want to shoot them up yeah. mechanical um, or, or standard. If, if you're having trouble with flight, Call our customer service um, or email us. We can help you with your, to be able to get them to fly well long range. I feel like it's a better, there's less failure modes. Even a mechanical that, that I designed and put years into, it's going to have more failure modes than our fixed heads. And is it worth taking those, you know, there's trade-offs and everything, but is, do you really want to have something that can give you a higher chance of failure um, for, you know, for what reasons? And right now I don't see enough good reasons um, to make one and push people towards that versus what we offer. Yep. Nope. Good answer. Uh, but um, yeah. all right. Well, Bill, I appreciate you coming on and, and, and talking with me again here. It's, it's, uh, it's always good. It seems like just about once a year we, we end up getting together and doing a podcast and it was nice getting to to see you here recently i'm excited to to hear how your hunts go uh this fall sounds like you got a a full plate that's for sure i do yeah i've got um yeah bear two elk mule deer four whitetails in the plans right now so it'll uh should be good what do you got what do you have planned here bo so i have the montana elk hunt so as this is this goes out i'll probably be driving out there here in a couple of weeks um, um basically so i'm leaving soon for that and i have slated uh 21 days to be out there um uh nice. to, to and so i also have a combo uh so i have a mule deer slash white tail tag there too so if i get lucky and tag out early on elk i'm gonna try to hunt some deer maybe even try to hunt some white tails there although i haven't killed a mule deer yet but i you know i'm, I'm a white tail guy at heart so might try to do that a little bit and then um 
Then I have Pennsylvania uh, and West Virginia whitetail tags I'll be focusing on pretty heavily. And then possibly going back out to Montana in November to hunt uh, the rut with that, that general combo tag with the, the mule deer and, and, and whitetail there. So my brother lives out there, so it would make it, uh, thought about spending Thanksgiving out there and, and doing a little bit of hunting there too. But that's what I have on the, pl- on the plate now and, uh, kind of see as the season goes, whether like last year I didn't have New York in the plans, but I just went and bought it and over the counter tag and went there or Ohio. But I, I really want to, I want to focus in on those States that I have tags in and, and spend enough time in there to hopefully, hopefully do all right. So that's my plans. Great. Well, I look forward to talking later and hear how the season went. Yeah, no, definitely. Likewise. So Bill, um, ironwilloutfitters.com is a website, ironwilloutfitters on anything on social media. Is there anywhere else that people can follow along and, and check out the products and, and some of the informational videos and stuff that you guys put out? Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Our website, as you said, ironwilloutfitters.com and that's our Instagram, Facebook, um, as well we have a youtube channel where we're posting some how-to videos and um we post more and more stuff on there so you can check out our our youtube channel as well and that's um iron wall outfitters yeah the 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 youtube channel is very helpful i I will say to you just feedback it's been really helpful as you know just even when you know i never hot melted in you know inserts and heads before and how to do that and using the tool and going in there and and roughing things up and cleaning it and making sure you put everything together right really helps the the people sharpening the blades you know taking care of the uh, tool blade and like all that different stuff it's a lot of good information there so if anybody has any of the products or interested it's it's uh you'll learn a lot on the channel yeah, well, thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate yeah. it. No, as always, Bill, it's good talking to you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit eastmeetswesthunt.com, Facebook at East Meets West 